0: 2 Samuel chapter 8 tonight, picking up where we left off, verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag-Ammah from the hand of the Philistines, uh, and then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. We're going to, in this chapter, uh, it starts with verse 1. It says, after this. In the, in the Hebrew, that's a transition. Uh, it's not a sequential word, like a, as, as in chronologically after this. Uh, it's after we've established these things, here's the process by which David did things. So we saw it, uh, um, not long ago, it said that David, David achieved peace in the land. Well, he did that by what happens here in chapter eight. So we get kind of the overview picture of David's kingship, and now we're going to get a little more, a little more granular. And boy, when we get to Chronicles, we'll get uh, at, you know at the very detailed kind of level of this. So after this, um, we have this. So he's got these victories uh, of, of the kingdoms all around Israel from verses one to fourteen, and then the administration of Israel is in verses fifteen to eighteen as we get into chapter eight. Uh, The Philistines have been ongoing enemies in verse 1 of Israel. We've had some other stories around the Philistines. But David's going to proceed to create a nation at peace. And to get at peace, he has to deal with the people that are routinely raiding and attacking Israeli people. So we're going to see, and I think we should pay attention to this, that Israel goes on the offensive. And they go on this offensive in large part because they've had hundreds of years of struggle with some of these groups of people, like the Philistines. We've seen the Philistines be an image of kind of the world or the enemies of God. And they lost ground to the Philistines. They lost a large part of northern Israel to the Philistines. And then under Abner and now David, they've taken that land back um, and they have subdued the Philistines. So that's where we start in verse 1. And David took Methag ama from the hand of the Philistines. That would be in the Hebrew, it's bridal mother literally took the reins out of their hands. They no longer get to control their own uh, destiny. And and that's the west border of Israel because Dan didn't push them out back when Joshua was around. And that ends the threat from the west, at least for a season it will. And then David attacked. Um, So this is uh, an effective military practice that if you know you have a people that hate you and attack whenever they can, that you attack them first. So it's proactively building the sovereignty or the ability to rule itself from Israel. They're done constantly falling under the rule of the Philistines, which is pretty much the book of Judges, right? So that era ends with David. It creates a legacy. Uh, God established this back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the beginning of the book, because 1 and 2 Samuel were initially one book. Uh, There was one mom that gave her heart to the Lord, and decided to commit her son Samuel, that's Hannah, and to the service of God. So if you think about this in, in a trajectory, and context, we now have Israel as a sovereign nation, but First Samuel didn't start that way. This legacy is built up for a long time. It's been a long journey, but here we are now with um, Israel taking the reins out of the hands of the Philistines, And for himself. We now have God's kingdom established on earth, Israel. Uh, And this isn't David's kingdom, make no mistake. God has brought this entire journey in a way that only God can. So David established Zion as the capital, Jerusalem. He then brought the ark to Jerusalem. The first time he tried to bring the ark, uh, he screwed it up Uh, in much the same way Saul did. Saul's had people bringing the ark into battle and they lost it and it got to be a mess. And um, and the second time now David does it, there's, there's a mess up, and, and they don't follow God's law to do it, but now that they do, we're in good shape. So we have two kings. We have a king, Saul, that did things in the flesh, uh, and, and it didn't work, <laughs> and now we have David who's been doing things in the spirit, and we see that the nation gets established. So in verse 2, the Moab is now bringing tribute to Moab's on the other side of Israel. So the Philistines are to the west, Moab's to the east, um, other histories, uh, uh, Jewish histories, record that uh, you know, David's um, uh, related to Ruth and uh, the Moabitess. So David has some kinship with the Moabites. Um, but there are some records outside the Bible that show that David's family was killed by the Moabites when he took over the kingship of Israel. So there could be that either way, what we do know from verse 2 is that The relationship with Moab has degenerated, has decayed, um, and, and he has to go and subdue them to the east also to eliminate another threat to Israel. So this seems cruel that they draw a line down the middle. Obviously, this is one of those passages people struggle with. They draw a line down the middle and they kill half of the people, and the other half they leave alive. One way to look at this is they just killed half the people in Moab. Another way to look at this is, and I think this is the more ancient perspective or anyone who read this originally, they left half the Moabites alive. Why did they do that? So that seems to be, I think that's the question to ask. Why would David show that kind of mercy to people that had been antagonistic to Israel? And, and why the resistance or the hesitation? Verse 3, um, we're going to keep seeing that With each of these border countries, they're dealt with in a very different way. So Moabites have been dealt with with this line. And again, I think one perspective on the Moabites there is that David chose to not slaughter them all. And historically, that's distinctive. And really, that idea of showing mercy to a defeated enemy uh, is fairly uncommon in the ancient world. This is a much more brutal world than we live in today. Uh, and, and, and even today, this idea that he left them alive and and apparently uh, he's going to leave their leaders in place. So David does some really interesting things. Each of these nations are dealt with in a slightly different way. I think this creates another kind of typology. And we don't do our doctrine from typology, but it's one way to think about the chapter is that as believers, we deal with the world all the time. Sometimes we partner with the world. Sometimes we, we, have antagonistic relationships with the world. But like David, he has all these different pagan nations around him, and each one gets handled differently. And I think one lesson to draw from that is that David's following the will of God, and the will of God's not the same in every situation. There's no rule for David on how he deals with these nations. He has to use judgment, and he has to use common sense, gifts from God. Wisdom is an absolute gift from God. It's the And the love of God is the beginning of wisdom. So David shows some grace, some discretion. He shows uh, conquest with the Philistines. He just pretty much came and subdued them. Uh, Verse 3, he also defeated defeated Hadadizar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the the river Euphrates. And David took him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and went, and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. He didn't destroy their whole army then, he just reduced it. Uh, Zobah is in Syria, it's north northeast of Israel, but the distinctive part about Rehob king of Zobah is that this is a long ways away from Israel, showing the extent of David's reach. Uh, Saul had beaten them previously, but he beat them when they were coming really close to Israel. River Euphrates, that's a long ways away. That's modern Iraq. So this is saying how far that reach went. And it says that he encountered them on their way to retake their territory. So David met an army in the field um, and was stopping their will from being done and, and, and interceding in what they wanted to do. Uh, They brought chariots, which are attack weapons. They're offensive weapons. You don't defend with a chariot. You attack with a chariot. Uh, And he destroys this ability to attack. Uh, The translation in verse 4 is tricky. It says, in my Bible, it says, David took from him 1,700 horsemen. Um, It it may read differently. Like, he took from him 1,000 chariots and 700 horsemen. It's the same thing. And the word chariots there is, uh, I, I think, not in the right uh, position, or it didn't get translated into the English well. Essentially, he took 1,700 horsemen or chariots, and then he hamstrung the horses, leaving it instead of a, a 1,700. There's now 100 chariots left that are functional, but they're left at the same time. Um, so this this idea that he hamstrung the horses meant that they couldn't be used as an offensive weapon anymore. That takes out about nine tenths of their military. I think again, it's odd that. And one of the questions is, why does David not take the chariots for himself? That's odd. Why does he leave uh, for them enough of them for 100 chariots? Why does he do that? He writes himself in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh, so he tells us why he doesn't take much stock in chariots, and he's not out to attack other people. He's out to defend Israel. When the Syrians of Damascus, verse 5 came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah. David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. So another army masses in the field, he takes out that army. It's almost like David's marching around the borders of Israel, waiting for armies to pop up, and he's nailing the armies on their turf versus waiting for them to come attack Israel, which keeps Israel's crops intact, which keeps their herds intact, which allows Israel to grow in prosperity because they're not fighting battles on their soil anymore. This is where a nation gets established. So there he is out in the field. They are coming. Another army of Syrians forms. They're on their way. David goes into the field and fights them, and they fight back. Verse 6, David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. The garrisons that we see would be little outposts of soldiers, and then you would assign soldiers' duty to that garrison, but the purpose of the garrison is to make sure that the roads stay safe. So when you have soldiers enforcing law and order in a land, that's a good thing. It's even good for the Syrians. Um, And the Syrians of Damascus then have uh, some sort of law and order brought to them. And as Israel gains in strength, their neighbors seem to benefit from that at some level. And the Syrians became David's servants. That means they brought tribute, verse 6. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. That's going to be a key point at the end of verse 6 there. We're going to see at the end of the chapter that he doesn't go out with um, his general and they don't win a victory. And then we're going to see in future chapter 11 that that he sends out Joab again and that's when he gets into trouble with sin. But the Lord preserves him whenever he's in the field. When he's not in the field, he's putting himself in situations where the enemy seems to be able to get at him. Verse 7, David took the shields of gold that it belonged to the servants of Hadadizar and brought them to Jerusalem. Also, from Beta and from Barothai, the cities of Hadadizar, King David took a large amount of bronze. <laughs> that The point for the writer then is, well, this is how David got some wealth put together. Like So he's not getting into the fine details of how the Syrians were beaten. I don't think that's what matters to, to the writer. What matters is that the Lord preserves David wherever he goes, And what matters is that this is one of the places from which he got all these bronze shields. Why is that important? Because there's a large amount of bronze that goes into the building of the temple, which is what David brought up with Nathan a couple chapters ago. So again, we're in that context of this is the history of the temple and where that money came from to build it. So David took the shields of bronze, that's an image of prestige that he's taken in keeping. He's taking again, he's taken away their capacity to make war against Israel. Um, it's indicative of warfare that God's people are constantly in it. As the nation of Israel gets formed, it doesn't, it's not all peace and rainbows after that. Israel gets formed and David is on constant vigilant against the enemies and the armies that the enemy would bring at God's people. And it's the same way when we get saved. You give your life to the Lord, that's not the end of all trials and tribulation. In some ways, it's just the beginning. Only God promises peace and security in our heart, just like Israel has peace in the heartland, while David's out doing this, protecting the borders. For the weapons of our warfare, you know this verse, they're not carnal but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's exactly what David's doing in the physical world. He's bringing every one of these nations into captivity to subdue them, to get them to pay taxes, and he's not just stealing from them, he's actually establishing garrisons in those lands so that there is peace, or there's at least a warning system to where if there's another army amassing, they get a warning before that army hits the lands of Israel. David's going to fight them on their territory, not the other way around. So if every thought for us spiritually is a battlefield, we kill the sinful thoughts. We ignore the idle and vain thoughts. We take back our minds, right? And if there's thoughts that ally with the work of God, we embrace those thoughts. We bring them in close. And we deal differently with different kinds of thoughts based on the disposition they have towards our spiritual life as we walk with God. It's all incorporated. First Chronicles 18.8 Also from Tiboth and from Chun, the cities of Hadadezar, David brought a large amount of bronze, with which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. It's a lot of bronze. Chronicles tells us what it was used for. Here that's not necessarily the point yet, um, but the point is just that David got a ton of bronze. Uh, it says a large amount. Um, we know from 1 Kings 10.23 that the amount of bronze brought back surpassed, uh, surpassed all the wealth that was on the earth at the time. <laughs> so we're talking about an enormous amount of bronze coming back. These shields that belonged to the servants of Hadadizar, uh they must have had bronze mines or were making bronze with their, their ores. Uh, so we're talking about billions of dollars worth in today's money worth of bronze. Verse 9: When Toi, king of Hamath, that's north of Israel, heard that David had defeated an army of Hadadezar, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadizar and defeated him, for Hadadizar had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. Some of the the bronze they took from their earthly enemies, but notice as they build friendships, gold and silver get integrated too. Images or metals that represent our heavenly relationships. This is kind of interesting that as David defeats Hadadizar, he takes a bad thing out of the world, or at least cripples that bad thing and makes it so they can't go and do bad things. And in doing that, even other pagan nations that don't have that evil disposition are grateful for the work that David did. And this is why Toy sends this gift to David. And it's, again, we're getting this record of where this money's coming from and where these metals are coming from that are gonna build the temple. So this is ancient world geopolitics. It really is today too. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And David doesn't have to conquer every pagan nation. Some of them say, we're really grateful you're there. Thanks for taking out Hadadizar. The guy was nasty and he oppressed us. So David constantly does these things. He's gathering these things for God's glory. He gets the credit. David didn't build himself a, a, a temple of David. He didn't, he didn't honor himself by hiring authors to write the the oracles of David or the chronicles of David. Uh, we get a very different kind of Bible. When we get a record of this, we get David as as a human character that has both good and bad. Any other historical figure trying to glorify themselves, you'd get things like the Iliad and the Odyssey. You'd get things like the 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 Babylonian archives, right? You get those kinds of mythological, legendary stories. David just treats these people like allies, and they give him a present, and we get a recording of it. It's really simple. All these battles collectively make David one of the most successful military leaders ever. Yet what we get is a nation of Israel that's successful, because kings come and go, but the God stays forever. Verse 11, King David also dedicated these to the Lord. God gets the glory along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from Philistines, from Amalek, uh, from the spoil of Hadadizar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David uses these spoils to add to the wealth of the tabernacle. God said you can't build the tabernacle. He didn't say that David couldn't accumulate massive wealth so that his son could build the tabernacle. So that's immediately what he starts doing. I think of believers in the church where they're like coming into a church and they got gifts that they want to use and the pastor says, Well, we already got lots of people doing that. Could you help out over here? A godly person says, Sure. I'll help out. I'll help out wherever I'm needed. An ungodly person gets all mad and in a huff and they go off to find a place where they can do what they want to do. David's told, No, you can't build the temple. He just says, Fine, I'll help wherever I can. If I'm a man of war, then I'll go be a man of war, and I'm going to do it with everything I got. So this builds security for Israel, builds a a pot of money for the temple. It builds glory to the Lord because David's not just keeping it all for himself, accumulating wealth. Verse 12, then, is the full boundary and borders. It's a list of each of the nations all the way around uh, with everything except for a, a nation to the west, because that's the Mediterranean Sea, but basically draws a, an arc around Israel, um, a crescent around Israel, uh, that is all of, the, all of the enemies of this era. So it's close to the Genesis 15 boundaries of Israel. I'd argue we're not quite there, that the Euphrates gets mentioned here like it does for God's borders for Israel. Uh, but David, do, it doesn't say that he... That Israel extends out to the Euphrates. It just says he's putting up garrisons and that there's other people that live out there. So I still think that Genesis 15 has yet to be fulfilled, uh, where Israel's grown to that size. But the fact that Israel is a country, that's a good starting point for Genesis 15 boundaries to get fulfilled, the promise that God made to Abraham for his descendants. So you got Ammon, who's listed here, there to the east. They are mentioned back in 2 Samuel 10. Amalek is to the south. They're, they were defeated back in 1 Samuel 30. And what you get here is just kind of a summation of all of those defeats and conquers, conquerings that happen. David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the valley of salt. The Dead Sea is to the east of Israel. That would have been a battle just south of the Dead Sea. Likely the Syrians, mercenaries for Edom, we're coming down because this is pretty far outside of Syrian territory. And in verse 14 it mentions Edom. So likely the Edomites had hired these Syrians to come down. David identified through his garrison system that there was an army marching and he went out and took the army out. So verse 14 he then put garrisons in Edom, which is why we think that's what's going on. Uh, throughout all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. That's the second time we've seen that phrase. When David goes out into the field, things go well. Uh, Edom then it gets recorded. Remember, Edom is the descendants of Esau. Uh, Esau sold his blessing for a bowl of soup. Uh, and they're the first to break away from this alliance of nations uh, as we go forward. Uh, Edom has had an adversarial relationship with God's people um, since, since Jacob and Esau. Like it, it's always been a bitterness. Perhaps they see the blessings God gives to Israel and there's, there's something there. I think in, in essence you get people that don't like each other and they teach it to their kids. So there's just a generational animosity between Israel and Edom that's there. So verse 15 we get David's administration then we kind of shift to the next section. So David reigned over all Israel. That's a big summative statement. He reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. You know, as it's a summative sentence, I'll, make, I'll put a summative thought with this. You know, this is why David's considered the greatest king of Israel, is that he reigned, he administered, and that administration had judgment, good judgment, common sense, and it had justice. People could expect to be treated fairly under a law. It wasn't the whim of David that led this country. It was justice that landed it. The judgment was rooted in the word, uh, which is going to be take over as the ruling authority in the country, is that it's not the whim of a human, it's the written law of God that reigns. It's part of how the founding fathers of America, they went to Deuteronomy and said, what do we need to do to make this appropriate for our, where we're at here? And they built a country that was the rule of law is what ruled, and that law should treat everyone the same. It should be fair, uh, impartial blind. That's why Lady Justice has a blindfold over her eyes. First Chronicles 20, 29, 9. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they'd offer willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. The end result of judgment and justice in a land is that the people benefit from that. There's a blessing that comes with this, and people rejoice and they celebrate. And they get out on Independence Day and they celebrate the fact that they live in a country that's fair, where people can do their lives and expect that they won't have people stealing from them. They can expect that they can have justice when they go to ask for it from the courts. And when you have weak leadership, those things start to fade. So the greatest blessing God can give a nation is that you have good leadership that administers judgment and justice. What more could you ask for from a government? So on earth, under the sun, that's what we're looking for. It's the greatest blessing God can give not only to Israel, but to every nation surrounding Israel. They're no longer under the dominion of nutty tyrant leaders that call them out to war every year. So David establishes law and order first. That's his administration. Verse 16, here's the people that helped him do it. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Uh, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. (laughs) I like that the recorder gets second place. Like the person writing this text gave himself really David, Joab, and then the recorder in rank order. Like, and I, I don't think that's an accident. I think the recorder was awfully important in Israel because keeping the record of God's work was a key position in that nation. Verse 17, Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sarai was the scribe. The scribe was the person that would keep rewriting the Bible so that they those scrolls would wear out, so they needed a scribe that pretty much day in, day out, they were recreating or making copies of those scrolls. Benaiah, the son of Jeohiada, Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief Ministers or servants, people that, that helped out were needed. I, I love that we get an administrative record here. It says a couple things to me. One, that David doesn't work by himself. Saul pretty much led and did everything himself. He had Abner as a general, and that was about all we have a record of. But it's important enough to the recorder, maybe because of David's direct concern with it too, that these other people got listed in the kingship. Again, David doesn't need all the glory and all the attention. And frankly, that almost brings him more honor in my head than if he did try to get all the glory and attention. It makes him greater to share the glory with other people. So we see teams of people in God's kingdom that when it's done right, it's done with a team. And David's clearly at the head of that team, but he couldn't do it without these people couldn't do anything without these people. And that stays true to any work of God in the church. There might be people that are out in front or that, that, that are seen more like David, but those people have to have folks around them that have their back and support them. And David had some wonderful people as part of his kingdom. We'll get longer lists in Chronicles. Uh, this is the Pelethites first mention in the Bible. Uh, they're believed to be from Crete, so an island nation. Uh, they're also Gentile, but when it says that, that jo- Jehoiada was over these groups of people, it's almost like they've joined Israel, like they're part of Israel. Um, so some of the nations, the Gentile nations around them, they subdued. Some of them they partnered with. Some of them they accepted gifts from and blessings from. And some of them seem to have just joined and become part of Israel. And we're going to see later that the Cherithites and Pelethites are some of the most loyal soldiers that David has. So even as his son tries to usurp and take the throne, it's going to be the Cherethites and the Pelethites that stick with them. So some of these Cherethites and Perethites are fiercely loyal, devoted to, to David, um, and, and like no other. The Cherethites, we start to know why, because in 1 Samuel 30 we got the story that when David's uh, Philistine home in Ziklag got attacked while he was away, it was the Amalekites that attacked the city and stole all their wives. When they talk to the Egyptian afterwards, the Egyptian tells them that not only did they hit Ziklag, but they hit the Cherethites too. So when David went and got all the wives returned, likely he freed all of the imprisoned people, which would have been a bunch of Cherethite women and children. And that's where that loyalty came as they followed, have followed David from the Phil- being a Philistine town to being an Israelite town. And they've likely done it because David was kind and, and, and served them back in 1 Samuel 30. It's hard to argue that the Israelites were as ethnocentric as the Pharisees are in the first century. It's hard to argue that at the foundation of Israel as a nation, that they didn't have access. And under the law, a Gentile could be part of Israel if they agreed to live under the law. So these Cherithites would have all had to get circumcised to be kind of part of Israel. But anyone who agreed to honor the Lord, even, even silly laws like circumcision, and they were going willing to live under that law were welcome to be part of Israel. And they were told to be not treated like strangers, but treated like brothers. So God established in the law a rule in which a non-Jewish person could become part of the family. All they had to do was accept the gift and live under God's law. So, so I hope that sounds familiar, because we need that law as Gentiles, most of us are Gentiles, we need that law to come into Christ's family and accept the gift that he gave on the cross. So those very laws that allow the Cherithites and Pelethites in are the same laws that allow us to come into Christ's family and accept the sacrifice that he makes for his family. And, and we're also invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, at which I know there will be great food. So, To sum up, David is established as king. Israel is safe from threats. Alliances are solidified. Now what? Now what do you do? And I think the next thing David does is he starts looking around for how he can show kindness to people. Like once you've got peace in the land, you think, okay, how can I bless people? Once you've found a church that you can be at peace in and you're getting fed by the Holy Spirit while you go there, then you can ask the question, how do I bless people? How do I make peace with people? How do I serve and minister to others? Romans twelve sixteen: be of the same mind towards one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I like that line. Repay one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, live as much as depends on you, li- live peaceably with all men. I think that's what David's doing. So we get to 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 9. Now David said, is there still anyone who's left in the house of Saul that I can show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why would a king do this? Why would one of the most successful military leaders on planet earth stop and say, how can I help my friend's kids? And The histories that show this kind of person are a people group that I want to know much more about because they elevate this behavior to be as or more important than the conquests we just read about in chapter 8. I love this. Who can I show kindness to? What can I do for the Lord? He won't let me build a temple, but how can I be a good shepherd? How can I be a king? How can I do the work that God's called me to do and minister to other people? The custom uh, in the ancient world, again, the custom was when you became king, anybody that was a threat, you killed them. <laughs> so anyone related to Abner, you, you kill them. Anyone related to Ishbosheth, you take them out because that eliminates any potential threats to your kingship, which protects you and protects all of your children, and anyone related to you like you're doing that because these blood feuds would go on for generations. And David just stops it. Instead of going after Mephibosheth, he's going to actually elevate him, giving Mephibosheth no reason to attack David back. And that sounds really like manipulative or Machiavellian. I don't think it was that at all. I honestly think David just loved Jonathan and he's keeping his promise. It it also happens to be a strategically brilliant new approach. It says, for Jonathan's sake, that's a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 15, but you all, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house or my family. That's what Jonathan made David promise. So David made a promise that he wouldn't cut off his kindness. Uh, he would be kind to Jonathan's family even when he became king. And it's excuse me, as Genesis 9 sits right between chapters 8 and 11 showing battles, this is one of the great battles that David won in the way that the Lord would want him to win it. There was was no more civil war because David makes friends out of enemies. And he's going to do that. How do we know that that this is an enemy? Because this person was hiding to the degree that David didn't know where he was at. In other words, the other person perceived themselves as an enemy. And there was a servant, verse 2, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. First of all, I think David just wanted to say the sentence, Are you Ziba? Like we all do. Like, don't, you, don't we all want to say, Are you Ziba? Because I love the name Ziba. It doesn't mean anything particularly relevant to the chapter, um, but it's just a great name to say, Ziba, Ziba, Ziba. Uh, when he was a kid, he was the little Zibanator. Then the king said, verse 3, I'll move on. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? So David's not trying to elevate himself. He's trying to show the kindness of God. God was kind to David. David can be kind to other people. David was plucked out of being a shepherd and he's going to pluck this uh, Mephibosheth out of hiding. And Ziba said to the king, Is there still a son of Jonathan? There is still a son of Jonathan who's lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel and Lodibar. So he's getting his information from a servant. Uh, That servant's either fearful of David and what David will do to him, or that servant is loyal to David and just giving him this information. The thing is, he didn't give David the information to try to get something, making Ziba a pretty good guy. He didn't tattle on his friend just for the sake of being elevated in the king's eyes. But when the king directly asked him, nor did he lie, told the truth. In the War of the Roses, uh, there were constantly heirs hiding out from, from the one side or the other. And the families would come around that heir even little teeny children, five-year-old people, they wanted to put on the throne, but the fact that they were an heir had had made this big, big difference. David does the opposite of trying to kill these opposite heirs. He shows the kindness of God, verse three, and it motivates him. You're either <laughs> you're either all in on the kindness of God or you're not. There, there's no half in, half out on this, right? if you're half in, half out with your your spiritual life, God's probably pretty silent in your life. But when you do the kindness of God and you pay that forward to God's people, you probably see and understand that God's Spirit is constantly a move all around you. And there's a reason for that. It's hard to share with other people what God isn't doing in our lives. It is awfully hard to do that. So we have to start prior to having God do things in our lives, we actually have to give our lives to God at the beginning of that process. So we don't even own those things. David is wholly in the service of God and he has so much to show for it. Ziba shares the location, shows this trust in David, um, or at least loyalty. And we have this son of Jonathan hanging out with Maker, the son of Amiel, We'll see that when David's running from Absalom, he, he hangs out at, at Maker, the son of Emile's house. So the only two mentions of Maker in the Bible are both mentions where he's showing refuge to people that don't have refuge. And what a great way to be in the Bible. So Maker's just, what a putting people up that need a place to stay. Then King David, verse 5, sent and brought him out to the house of Maker. Nice quiet little country town and in come the soldiers of David asking for where Mephibosheth is. So they brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Emile. then from Lodibar. And now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Before I read the rest of verse 6, that whole trip had to be torture because Mephibosheth's in hiding because he thinks David's going to take him out. The soldiers of David pick him up and haul him away. Likely the soldiers thought David was going to kill him too. That was how much a part of the culture that behavior was. So they're not making friends with the guy who's on his way to death. They're probably pretty quiet. So by the time they get towards Jerusalem, because he's coming in from the countries, so coming in for from the coastal regions, He fell on his face and he prostrated. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Why does he do this? Because he's throwing himself at David's mercy. It's all he can do. He was in hiding, but now he's been brought into the light. He was scared, but now he's got nothing left to be scared of. The worst he could imagine has happened, and that is he no longer controls his destiny. The king controls his destiny. And the king always has controlled his destiny. But there he is. He's just going to lay on the ground in front of himself, fell on his face is I think, fairly literal to, because he prostrated himself. So he laid flat on the ground, made prostrate. And then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. I think David, I read that with just a tone of joy. Like there's a question mark there. And, and Mephibosheth, like there's an excitement behind the question Is that you? Is that you, Mephibosheth? So Mephibosheth is probably not hearing that tone. He's probably thinking, this is the end. He's toying with, me. he's like a cat playing with a toy. Um, So he uh, still maybe doesn't know what's coming, but his behavior is indicative of someone that's trying to show the utmost respect for another person. We, We saw this, we've seen this occasionally. We saw this with uh, various places in the Bible, they, they meet each other, and then one of them just um, says, I'm your servant, what can your servant do for you? And that humility is very overt. So David said to him, don't fear, for I will surely show you kindness, and for Jonathan your father's sake, and I will restore you to you all the land of, your fa- of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon "'with such a, such a dead dog as I.' "'And the king called to Ziba and Saul's servant "'and said to him, "'I've given your master's son "'all that belonged to Saul and all the house. "'You therefore and your sons and your servants "'shall work the land for him "'and you shall bring in the harvest "'that your master's son may have food to eat. "'But Mephibosheth, your master's son, "'shall eat bread at, at my table always.' "'Now Ziba had, been, had 15 sons and 30, 20 servants.' It's a total of 35 sons and servants. Servants are people you take into your family. They're not like slaves, like we think of it. Um, Some servants even volunteered to be a servant for the rest of their life. They go through a ritual when they did that. Um, So when we see sons and servants, we know something about Ziba, that he would take people in um, and make them his servants. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so your servant will do. This is actually kind of a promotion for Ziba. Like he was just a servant in David's court, but now he's the servant. And when I say the servant, think like, Joseph taking over for Pharaoh as the servant, right? So servants could have authority, and in this case, he's putting Ziba over the whole household. But what this means is that Mephibosheth is going to be provided for, everyone in his family is provided for, but Mephibosheth gets to sit at the king's table. What an offer. And it becomes this image of a good and a godly king saying, I will do everything for you. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David. There's none of Mephibosheth's works or deeds that warranted this gift. The only thing that caused this gift to happen is that the, 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 the king had made a promise to the father. I just, you see the imagery here, right? David is going to be ex, exuberantly kind to Ziba because he can and because he wants to. It's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. He's going to give Mephibosheth new strength and new authority. He's going to take him out of hiding, bring him into the light. He's going to take him out of fear and bring him into courage and peace. He's going to do all this for Mephibosheth, but notice in the next verses, Mephibosheth still has his lame in both his feet. It's, they make a point of it. As, Meph, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. I'm going to bring him into my family just beautiful. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwell in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So David, you know, if you want to be cynical, he kept a potential threat happy, and the closer you keep your enemies, the better kind of thinking. I just don't see that. I see again that the reason that the Bible gives us is that David had a vow that he made to Jonathan, and he's keeping it part of what you might be able to read between the line is, is maybe David actually recognizes attributes of Jonathan and his son. Like that's not hard to see, right? A lot of times fathers and sons have a lot of things that little twi- like actual looks, but also dispositions, ways of talking stories that they tell. And maybe David just wants a reminder of his good friend and, and that it's just a joy for him to have somebody at his home. That's that adds that kind of atmosphere, or that kind of friendship. So he's a good king. He brought Mephibosheth from poverty into wealth, but it's it's not the kind of wealth where Mephibosheth gets everything, right? And I think this is an important aspect to this. His physical body still has to get dealt with, even after the king has uh, has dealt with the spiritual side of his life. Same thing's true when we accept Jesus as as our Savior. We will accept Jesus as our Savior, being offered the riches. Of eating at the king's table, you know, communion, the riches and the wealth of being able to fellowship and be part of the king's household, church. But we still have our flesh we got to deal with. That doesn't go away. And we start this struggle with the flesh, like last chap- chapter eight, or uh, yeah, chapter uh, where he's going around conquering all these nations. That struggle with the flesh, with the world, is part of our walk. But fight that fight. So we can do this for others. In the same way David did this for Mephibosheth, we can look around and say, okay, Lord, you're feeding my heart. What can I do to help other people? How can I lift other people up? What can I do that will make their day in a way they didn't expect that would happen? How can I show ridiculous grace to people? And David doesn't care about his appearances, how this looks. He cares about doing the will of God and showing the love of God. And so do we. Same thing. Verse Chapter 10 goes right back into this conquest narrative. Again, the story of Mephibosheth is right in the middle of the military conquests of David. And it's plopped right there because this is making a friend out of a potential enemy. That is a conquest. That's the surest way to destroy an enemy is to turn them into your friend. And he does it successfully. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. We'll wrap up with chapter 10 tonight. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanan the son reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash as his father showed kindness to me. This is a nation we, we had an alliance with Ammon. Remember we in the summary, Ammon was one of the nations that had to be dealt with. Well, here we're going to get that story. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the ha- land of the people of Ammon um, and again, this is where I kept thinking of that verse. Is if As much as possible, as it depends on us, live peacefully with people. So Amon gets a new king. David's just going to send over uh, uh, ambassadors uh, to say, hey, w- we just want to have the same peaceful relationship we did with you. And we, we give you our, your condolences. We know that's hard. David's dealing with this other national leader as though he's human and he has a heart. And he's trying to make peace, which he should be. Deuteronomy twenty eleven, it's the law. He is supposed to attempt to make peace with his neighbors. Um, so he's doing that, and he, and he gets a, a, new, a feel for this new king. Uh, however, this is a, a pagan nation, and this king does whatever their whim lets them do. Judges 11, uh, they were attackers. Uh, they were hostile to Israel. In chapter 8, 12, they were subdued. Uh, so we know this is kind of how that transition happens. Um, I think it's unique of Israel that they offer peace. It really is. Like a lot of times nations would might make peace because they simply don't have the strength to conquer. Um, but for, to offer peace when you have that strength uh, shows, I think, a greater kind of spiritual grace. Verse 3, And the princes and the people of Ammon said to Heron their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, to overthrow you? First of all, our God's a God of comfort, right? God does give us comfort when we need it. But this is what we would call, in in modern psychology, this is called projection. Uh, This leader, Hanan, has bad advisors. And these bad advisors think deviously about everything they do. So when they see a nice person just bringing a gift, all they can do is think deviousness on the part of those other people. It's projection. They think of others what's in their own heart, or they're led to the belief that other people have a trait that's too difficult for them to address in their own heart, right? Those are psychological definitions. Why do people do this? According to psychology today, it is easier to attack or witness wrongdoing in another person than to confront the possibility of have it in one's own behavior. How a person acts towards a target of projection might reflect how they really feel about themselves. In short, people who lie don't trust other people. People who are greedy suspect that everybody around them is greedy too. People that hate or generally complain, all they see is hatred and complaining, and they're blinded by themselves to create walls between themselves and other people because of their own sin. This is like creating your own little hell, right? Projection's nasty, but it works the other way too. People that are generally trustworthy are able to trust others even when they get betrayed, right? People that generally are truthful are pretty naive. They tend to be people who get lied to and they believe it because it doesn't occur to them that people would lie. People that are gracious and give love tend to hear graciousness and love for people. So even, this is extreme, and I'm sure you've met people like this, like something gets said that's meant to be hurtful or harmful, and people with good hearts just hear it and go, oh, they must be having a bad day, (laughs) right? They just assume the best of people, or, oh, they didn't mean it that way. I, I don't think they meant that, and they can't understand that people would say something mean because they never would say something like that. Or as my grandma used to say, um, "Never was heard a discouraging word, and the clouds were not, or the skies were not cloudy all day." It's a song, right? About living on the prairie. Like we just don't talk negative out here. We there's too many, too many other troubles in the world to have interpersonal things be a problem. So love works in a projecting way just as much as suspicion does. No matter how gracious David wanted to be to Hanan. Hanan was ready to hear bad counsel from projecting negatively projecting counselors. And there's, in that sense, there's nothing David can do. He can be as godly as possible, but the world is going to reject him. And they largely reject him because of the things that are in their own hearts. right? It's a phenomena that has not gone away. Verse four, Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. This is meant to humiliate and mock them, right? This is stage one. Let's do mockery. Let's make fun of God's people. And I'm sure in the court of Hanan, they're all laughing about it, thinking this is just great fun, but they're doing it at the expense of others. And when, by the way, when you mess with an ambassador, this is true today, you are messing with the leadership of that country. They are They are representatives of the leader. So when they do this to the ambassador, it is as though they did it to David himself. Remember how important beards were? You know, back when David was pretending to be insane, he drooled in his beard and that convinced everybody, well, he must be insane because beards were an image of honor. There was great respect for the elders in in all of these Middle Eastern cultures, there still is today. But a healthy, full-grown beard meant you had grown up. And if every season your people go out to war, getting to an age where you can have a full grown beard means you're an expert on the battlefield. So there's very practical reasons why a big, thick beard and a long beard was an honor of a, a respect and honor issue. It meant you could handle yourself. So these garments, that's still kind of a humiliating image. Obviously, if you cut people's clothes off at the waist and leave their butt and their their parts exposed. You're you're not trying to make them happy. You're trying to humiliate them. So it's easy to see what they're doing here. You know, this attack against David, not the ambassadors, the, the king who sent them, is the same kind of thing Jesus promised to us. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's not you. And when we interact with the world and we have these encounters with the world, It's not us that they're mocking and humiliating. They don't like the fact that we represent a king. So this is why, as believers, we always put the king out in front. I don't want anyone to meet me and not know that I'm a believer. I really want to make sure the king goes out front. So if those things happen, it's easy for me to project in a different kind of way than if I thought they were just attacking me. He sent, then he waits at Jericho. David is a king sees the dignity of these men as important. Letting them wait in Jericho was so that they could grow back their beards because they were greatly ashamed, verse 5. Think of how David. It's not all about David. David actually sends other people to meet them because part of the humiliation would be to have to go before David and show them their half beards. So even if they could get some new clothes, David cares about their dignity and he does everything he can do to restore their dignity Jordan's a city that's right on the river or the border of Israel, so they could wait there before they had to go face the people they knew. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, note that the in verse six it's the people of Ammon that re- react, not Hanan, which tells you how little authority Hanan really had in his kingdom. Like he's not running the show here. The people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zoba, 20,000 foot soldiers from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. So the Syrians kind of were definitely an association of city-states. And so here's three more city-states that are going to join in an attack of Israel um, and, 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 and do this. They're hired out, which is again why we saw the Syrians in Edom, why we think the Syrians then were hired by the Edomites is because they're down there and then they put garrisons in Edom. It's, this is part of where we get that from is that here it's explicit that the Syrians are hired to come and do this fighting. One good thing about hired people and one bad thing. One good thing about hiring people is you don't have to die on a battlefield. You're going to hire somebody to do that for you. Bad thing about hired mercenaries people is that they know that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they aren't going to necessarily die on a battlefield for you either. And so we'll see how this plays out. But you have these hired Sy- Syrians; They're paying for an army. This would be in a massive amount of money. Uh, they're losing millions in resources to pay for people to come and be their soldiers. Regardless, however this thing started, at this point we're now at war. It started with mockery and misunderstanding, but now it turns into all-out re- all battle And David's response to that battle is, "All right, you want to fight? Let's fight. So verse 7. When David heard it, he sent Joab and all the army of his mighty men. Make sure you remember the point that was made that wherever David went out, the Lord was with him. So we do not see that consistent in verse 7 like we did back in in chapter uh, 11. Or chapter 8, I'm sorry. So he sends Joab instead of going himself. So Um, this is not the reason they got a king. Back in Numbers 27, they said, "Give, give us someone who will guide us wherever we go and lead us into battle. So the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. To not go out and lead your nation in battle is not only contrary to the original reason the people asked for a king, it is also like leaving the sheep without a shepherd. If the shepherd isn't there to fight, the sheep aren't necessarily culpable for what goes wrong. David needs to be out there. He needs to be in, in the battle. It, it, it's, it, it's a king to running a church and having somebody else teach for you every week. You just can't do that. You actually have to be there to do the leading in order to do it. So David stays home. Um, he's going to get in some trouble with this. Um, he, has, he says in his own words in Psalm 44. So I think even David understood this, and here's why. Psalm 44:9. 9, he's, the, he writes, But now you have tossed us aside in dishonor. You no longer lead our armies to battle. Even David understood that it is shameful for a king to not lead his army. There'd be like old codger kings leading their armies with like people helping to hold their arms up like Moses. Like it didn't matter how old you were. It mattered that you were there, right? So these, these, these people leading in battle and this host that goes out with Joab, the army of the mighty men. Uh, This is the first use we see that word getting used with this army. Uh, Mighty is Gabor. It's an adjective for the host. Uh, They are mighty men. Uh, They're powerful. They're heroic. Uh, We know from Chronicles and Kings, some of these mighty men were recorded as killing hundreds, right? So they're glorious, epic fighters on the battlefield. But instead of seeing a bunch of tales that look like myths, we just get a record that they're going out to war right? Nobody brags them up. We don't make uh, action figures and car- cartoon characters out of them because we don't get that kind of detail. David couldn't lead without the glorious ones. They weren't glorious without his leadership. Like There's a symbiotic relationship between them. They're mighty because they follow David, and David is David because he has mighty people that follow him. That's true of all leadership positions throughout the history of the world. The leader is only as great as the people that follow and dedicate themselves to the cause. You can have a YouTube channel, but if nobody watches it, it's not much of a YouTube channel. It be the greatest content on earth, but if nobody's listening, you're, you're not leading. So even today, Israel doesn't have an army per se. They have the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. They're meant for defense. And when people gather armies, like they're doing here in Amon. Uh, this defense force can attack and will do so in order to do it. At this point in history, these are brutal times. And these mighty men doing brutal things were part of what established Israel as a nation. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Verse 8, Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Rob, Ishtob, Ma'aka were by themselves in the field. So you got Ammon in the city, the Syrians in the field, two separate armies. Verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, they got surrounded. How does this happen? Amon is straight east of Israel, Israel, Syria is straight north of Israel. As Joab goes east out to meet Amon, he turns to his left and, and has scouts tell him that there are Syrians on the way from the north. Meaning, now you've got Amon on your east-south and you've got is Syria coming in from the north and west. So he's pinched. He's he's in between these armies. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And he the rest of the people he put under the control of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Joab goes against the larger force with Israel's best. So that's the bigger threat. It gets the general, and then he puts his brother in charge. He splits the army to go into two directions, meaning he has he has a smaller force than he thought he was going to have in the battlefield. This is quick thinking, uh, but here we get quick quick strategy. And I think this is, to Joab's credit, he doesn't just sit and wait to be told what to do. He makes decisions because he knows the context and the situation. Again, when God's people are out dealing with the world, sometimes we have to make good, sound decisions as we do that. We have to use our common sense and do things that will be effective. Verse 11, then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if, the, Ammon, uh, if uh, the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come help you. Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. I, this is where you start to like Joab. So he had a little zeal going after Abner. But here you can start to see where that zeal can be used for the glory of God. Saying to be of good courage is to repeat the words of God, verse 12. And when we speak the words that God spoke in the Bible to other people, the benefit is that we're speaking God's word right into their heart. Be of good courage. It's what God said to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. He says, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people. He's repeating what he's heard from David. David's repeating what he's read in the word. And it starts to create a culture that we as the people of Israel, we as the people of God, are going to be strong we're going to be courageous. And courage, by the way, isn't the absence of fear. It's overcoming that fear. Strength isn't the ability to lift things. Strength is the ability to stand when pressed. It's not the absence of weakness. It's the decision to ignore it. We come into the kingdom of God sometimes broken, sometimes just understanding our limitations logically, sometimes just knowing the love of God and being drawn by the love of God. No matter how you come into the kingdom, you come to understand that you don't have that much to offer God. And praise God, he just wants us to be in relationship with him. He wants what's best for us, and what's best for us is to serve him. But we don't necessarily come to the table with epic skills and talents and magic powers. We come to the table as lowly human beings. Here I am. Send me. And that's courage. That's the decision and the choice to follow the king. So no matter how bad things look for Joab and the army of Israel, he says, be of good courage and let us be strong. He doesn't say be of good courage unless there is rational reason to fear what's happening. And I think the church needs to hear this message. There are plenty of reasons to be anxious or to fear the world around us. But we're not told to be fearful because fear does not come from our God. We're told to look at those things, to see them clearly, and not react with our feelings, but react with the knowledge of the Word of God, with faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. Be strong. That's the Word of God. Be courageous. That's the word of God. Pick yourself up and go anyways. I don't, I'm too scared. I don't want to talk to people about my faith. You know what? You're not called. We don't care about your fear. We all have the fear. The point is, are you willing to get over it because you love God more than you love your own fear? You love yourself. Get over yourself. If they're too strong for you, if you get overwhelmed, this is not a shabby motivational talk, by the way. If you start to get overwhelmed, we got your back. We're fighting for our cause. And then he lists off the causes. I love this. This It's just really succinct. Let's be strong for our people and for the cities of God. It's not just about your family, folks. It's also about the cities that are representing God on this planet. Let's be strong for our family. Let's do the right thing and have integrity because our kids are watching. Let's do the right thing because we stand as the people of God in cities of God or churches of God that represent God to the world around us. Sadly, a number of those churches are not representing God very well, and they bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. I love it when people say, I'm not a believer, but you seem to be one of the Jesus people that I actually think are authentic. Like, you seem to have the real deal. We're doing it for our people, and may the Lord do as he pleases. It doesn't matter to Joab if they win or not. Sometimes going into battle, sometimes giving your life to the Lord, means you actually sacrifice your life. And you say, it's not my life to claim, it's God's, and I'm going to give it to the purposes God has. So when he sends men out into the battlefield, win or lose, let God's will be done. And if God's will is that Israel loses, we're willing to give our life for that. If God's will is that I become martyred, I'm gonna trust that he's gonna give me the peace I need in the season I need it to go through with that. But short of that, we're gonna do we're gonna fight. We're gonna do whatever we can to win souls for the kingdom of God and tear down strongholds that put themselves up against the thinking of the thinking of God and the truth of God. Yeah, we're gonna do that kind of thing. So Joab in verse 13, and the people who were with him, because they were with him, I love that. That's what made Israel Israel, is they were all on board with this. They were with him, drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they, they, the Syrians, fled before them. So they don't even get to fight. And When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So there's no actual fighting, which means there's no actual battle getting won here. So David does not go out with his people. They do not win the victory. God still preserves the army, preserves his people, but they don't win it. They don't. This isn't conclusive. amen's still out there. One thought on this, too, is that this fulfills a promise back in Deuteronomy 28, 7, because they were all of one accord. The Lord shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So... In some ways, like this idea that they go into the battlefield ready to do their part, but God just takes care of it and they don't even have to swing a sword, Uh, that's wonderful. Another take on this passage is Joab's out fighting alone here. His king isn't with them. They don't get victory. When we go out and the Holy Spirit's not with us, we we might be preserved. We might do things that we think are okay, but we don't win hearts for the Lord if the Holy Spirit's not in it. You can't go out without your king. That said, the desire to hurt Israel was with both the Syrians and the Ammonites. The trouble's still there. Verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadizar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river Euphrates, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of Hadadizar's army, went before them. So you got this new coalition of towns um, that are each part of a Syrian kingdom. Verse 17. When David... When it was told David, then he gathered all Israel. So as Syria reinforced, David reinforces. Crossed over the Jordan, came to Helam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with them. So there's still an animosity towards God's people here. And now that David's with them, we're going to see the battle's conclusive. This might be God's way of saying, you need to be with your army, David. This is where I'm going to bless you. So David doesn't wait for the enemy to cross the Jordan. He crosses and fights them on their territory, and I think that's part of David's overall strategy. The morale is boosted, the confidence built, they got their king with them, and they actually do combat and they win. Verse 18, then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadizar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and they served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Sometimes when establishing law and order, you can't amend the criminal's heart. Sometimes what holds the criminal back from doing criminal things is the fear of good people. And that's not a bad thing. That's okay, the hooligans behave because they're worried about what will happen if they disbehave and that perception of justice perception of order the making of peace that happens here is significant and as david's here there's actually like they again they take out the charioteers they take out the horsemen weapons of attack right they're not weapons of defense defense is walls and soldiers on top of them so if you want to fight and protect your territory he does not dismantle the Syrians' ability to defend themselves. He does dismantle their ability to attack. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay if Syria stops hiring itself out to anyone that wants to attack Israel. Maybe they should just take care of their own place. They should stay in their own hulu hoops, so to speak. So after the fight's gone, the killing stops. David does not pursue and eradicate the Syrians. This is unique in world history. He just gets to the point of living at peace. And as soon as they cry, uncle, it's over. They make peace. And they don't have generation attack after attack trying to to avenge each other, right? When they're willing to make peace, under the law of Yahweh, peace can prevail. Under any other ancient code, peace does not prevail. Honor prevails. But there's no honor in David. The honor belongs to the Lord. So David doesn't have any honor to protect. It doesn't work that way. So Amon's still out there. They're the only neighbor left. We'll come back to them in the next chapter because the Ammonites are still sitting on the eastern border with a will to attack Israel, even though Syria is not out of the question. When we come back next week, uh, David will deal with the Ammonites. Um, and once again, he sends out the army without going. And this is when David gets in all sorts of trouble on his own. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these histories. We thank you for the honesty that they contain. That we can read them today, Lord, and they still come alive. Uh, these are amazing texts. I can't really say that of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but we can, you wrote a book that you, was meant to be read. And it was meant to be read by simple people like us, Lord. And we just thank you for that blessing. What a gift. Lord, you didn't have to do anything for us, yet you pulled us out of obscurity and you've invited us to your table. Lord, you didn't have to fight our battles, yet you do. And the enemy flees when we just have enough courage to stand in the field. Lord, may each person in this room stand. Lord, may in every situation with their family, with their coworkers, with their friends, may every person that knows everyone in this room understand with full clarity that we're Jesus people. We're all in that we live for you, we've given our life to you, and we're willing to die for you if that's what it comes to. And I know that scares some people, Lord, but I know that you give provision when you call people to that. But what you're asking for is our hearts. So, Lord, I just pray that anyone in this room that's struggling with giving you their heart, that you melt that. And, And, Lord, that we just can commit our lives to you. Lord, if there's anybody in here who is not committed, they're not part of the army, may they be like the the Cherethites, may they join tonight and commit their life to you. Lord, you're our king, and we serve you beyond anything else. Lord, we love you, and we've done nothing to deserve it. We've broken your law. Yet you offer us forgiveness if we come to you in humility and ask for that forgiveness. And we do, Lord. Forgive us of our sins, our trespasses, and things we don't know that we're doing wrong. Have mercy on us, O Lord, that we might do your will on earth as it is in heaven. And carry out your agenda and Lord that is to, to save the hearts of the next generation and the people around us Lord may nothing get in the way of that may all our lives um, be open to your spirit and your calling so that we go out with you at the head of our arm help us to have unity as a people Lord and as a, a fellowship Lord may we love one another may we have forgiveness for one another may we have mercy for one another